Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, Dr. Santos here, PEDS ID doc, researcher, you know. And I'm your local California ER doc hiding in quarantine. Why are my amplitudes so small? <laughs> like compared uh, to you guys. Oh, <laughs> Is it just... how are you going to record with such a tiny amplitude? <laughs> so, some people just have small amplitudes. <laughs> no. That's... No, you, you, you've got nice big waveforms. Okay, well, I'll just move the mic closer to my mouth. And, I mean, they're um, not the biggest waveforms I've ever seen. Okay, you know, you know what? Hey, it's hey, not the size that matters. It's how you, it's how you <laughs> use those waveforms. <laughs> but, Thank you. Ward, have you, been feeling, have you been feeling trapped, locked away? Do you feel like you could use a little freedom? I think, that, Dr. J, that's all of us in 2020. That's 2020. That, that's true. That's true. Uh, well... Thanks for, for joining us, Ward, because we have made it to the end of season six. Damn! Woohoo! That's crazy. And with all this quarantine time, boy, oh boy, season seven is going to have so much. But you may be wondering, what could we possibly still have left to cover at the end of this season? Or not. Yeah. Maybe, not. Maybe, maybe you have no interest, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Yeah. Well, it's... I'm trying to do the thing, you know, the, wait, wait, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Go back, Josh, go back. Okay. All right. Okay. But you may be asking yourself, what could possibly be left to cover at the end of our sixth season? You're absolutely right. I'm wondering who's going to play me in the travel medicine, the movie. I want, <laughs> I want the guy from Randall That's right. Park. That's right. Anyway, <laughs> we're going to be talking about a time of change progress, unrest, racial tensions, cities segregated, neighborhoods avoided if you're the wrong color or belief system. Right. You know, so 2020 in review. Well, I was referring to the 1960s, but boy, that's depressing. Oh, shit. <laughs> how, how times have changed and not. <laughs> the more things change. So you're saying we're signing off on a high note. On <laughs> like one of those light, you know, happy little episodes that are kind of you know easy to digest and not very emotionally encumbering. You know what, Santosh? Just for that, we are. I'm going to tell you about the creation <laughs> of a medical specialty in the U.S. started almost entirely and largely unrecognized by. 
black people. The system of paramedics that we have in the U.S. today and how it dates back to a ambulance service called Freedom House. So join me as we hop into the Wayback Machine and head all the way to the 1960s, a very different time from today, kind of. Just (laughs) run with me on it. (laughs) Less riots or more riots? I don't know. I don't know anymore. (laughs) Either there were more or less riots. That's right. Or the same. (laughs) But changes were made and progress Sounds like progress, medical, and social were made. <laughs> Let's talk about our story is going to start in the predominantly black area of Pittsburgh known as uh, the Hill. Now, if you called 911 back in the 1960s, whoever was closest would respond. They didn't really have ambulances. Sometimes it would be a fire truck who could provide some minimal first aid. Often it would just be the police who would toss you into the back of the paddy wagon and cross their fingers, hope you survived long enough to get to the hospital. Occasionally, it would be a hearse uh, because, you know, you're already equipped to be laying down. And if they can't get you to the hospital in time, well, a little bit of a side gig never hurt. You know how the vehicle from you know how the vehicle from Ghostbusters is a white hearse? That's because that's what ambulances were. They were just hearses. Oh. Oh, that's sad. Um, And the funeral home employees didn't really have much instruction beyond drive fast. So we really just lacked EMTs as an entire concept. And while there were some private ambulances that did exist, they really weren't affordable and most offered no real benefit as paramedics also didn't exist. This starts in 1966 when the National Academy of Sciences published a white paper titled Accidental Death and Disability, The Neglected Disease of Modern Society. Ward, have you heard of the white paper? Never had the fortune of reading it. So it was a huge thing, especially for emergency medicine at the time, because with more and more people driving, the paper stated that up to 50,000 deaths each year were the result of inadequate medical transportation and lack of suitable hospitals within range of where accidents were occurring. There were more car accidents with more people on the road. There were more pedestrian versus auto accidents. Even the standard farm accidents, if you were injured, you couldn't get to a hospital in time. And this was causing a huge number of deaths each year. In fact, this was so bad that the former mayor of Pittsburgh and governor of Pennsylvania collapsed. And by the time he reached the hospital in a police car using one of these 911 calls, he had gone too long without oxygen and died. And that's where we draw the line. When a white mayor gets put in danger, God damn it, someone has to do something. He well, was already in a hearst. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, I mean, this is super important, right? White papers, essentially, they are data-only papers. So when you publish a scholarly white paper, you're not necessarily doing an interpretation the way that you would with a formal research paper where you have a hypothesis and you're testing it and that kind of thing. You're just releasing the data. You're saying, here's all the facts we have without any interpretation at this point. So they're basically just giving out the numbers and saying how bad the problem is at this point. Yeah. So 50,000 people dying per year just due to lack of adequate medical transportation. Now, you have to keep in mind, we talked about all these issues with medical transport being largely unreliable or unavailable. And that was just for the white people. If you're living in a black community in Pittsburgh in the 60s, and you call 911, the same police who were harassing you only a day earlier are now supposed to be the ones transporting you to the hospital, you're probably not going to have a ton of trust in their response times, to say the least. So we're going to jump away from our dead mayor. We'll come back to him and talk about Philip Holland, who was president of a local charity, the Maurice Falk Medical Fund, and a former one of these ambulance hearse drivers. And he noted that poor neighborhoods received little emergency care with even the police and fire trucks largely avoided responding to calls. People were just dying in the streets because no one wanted to take time to drive to these, you know, undesirable neighborhoods. This was regardless of 
race at this point. If it was an impoverished neighborhood, you were just in deep, deep, deep trouble. Which, by the way, it's still ongoing today, but at that time, there was no kind of impetus or push to do anything about it. So Philip Holland, this former ambulance driver, made this observation. He reached out to Jim McCoy, who ran Freedom House Enterprises, which was, at that time, a nonprofit that helped black people find jobs, register to vote, and organize NAACP meetings. In 1967, a year after the release of the white paper, Hallen and McCoy proposed a program to provide economic opportunity and emergency medical care to a community that had neither. And again, we're talking about the Hill area of Pittsburgh, which from my research I learned was a heavily black and very impoverished area where most of the folks in it were considered to be unemployables. So just like we slapped some people with a label deplorables back in 2016, here people were labeled unemployables. They were already determined they had nothing to contribute to society. So Hallen and McCoy reached out to Peter Safar, a prominent anesthesiologist. How prominent? Well, we've covered him a couple times on this show. Uh, After the death of his 11-year-old daughter from an asthma attack, he really began fighting to bring advanced emergency care to the patient even before the hospital, in the critical moments before patients could get there. And he was also involved in inventing the very first Recessi Ann mannequin and the creation of CPR. So Dr. Safar created CPR, was involved in the creation of the CPR mannequin Recessi Annie, and had a fairly interesting role to play in the development of paramedics. Ooh. So Hallen and McCoy wanted to provide better transportation or any transportation at all for Hill residing Pittsburgh residents to receive medical care. Safar saw an opportunity to test out his vision for pre-hospital care and community-wide emergency care, even as he began designing the earliest ambulances. So he said, His department would get vehicles to transport critically ill or injured patients with life support if they would allow him to train EMTs and medics to staff those ambulances. So I think having a focused mission like Dr. uh, like Safar did was like that's like the first important first step, because the mission of a police officer sometimes comes in direct contrast to the mission of a paramedic. Even nowadays in the ER, I get patients dropped off by you know in police custody and i i just it's not fair to anyone involved not fair to the patient not fair to the police officers to split those competing interests i mean and a and a uh morgue worker or a a undertaker that that the conflict of interest there is even (laughs) that, that is even more obvious and laughable you know yeah, yeah, that one that one was definitely no good. But I agree with you, Ward. You know, you, you've got peacekeepers, you know, people who are kind of charged with uh, keeping the peace, you know, you know, taking care of bad guys and protecting innocents and that kind of thing. And sometimes that means that they have to be in the field. They can't necessarily stop for people who are injured. Um to have a dedicated group of people like paramedics that do that in this day and age, that's, uh, Josh, I was shocked to learn how recent that this was. Yeah. Oh, oh, we're going to get to some crazy stuff in this story. And by the end of it, I think you'll have learned quite a bit. So Safar's original trainees, Safar So Good, would provide 24-hour emergency medical care and hospital transport in two districts of Pittsburgh. And every single one of his trainees had previously held low-paying or menial jobs, most lacked a high school diploma. A mandate for this program required 26 individuals to sign up, but with a low, low number of registrants, the founders, Hallen and McCoy, basically took to the streets of the Hill District in a station wagon promising people hot meals or anything they needed or wanted just to convince them to sign up and take part in this EMT program. Wow. So freedom. Can you imagine, you know, Hey, you want to be an ambulance driver? Will you give me a hot meal? Sure. Whatever it Uh, takes. uh, Josh, 
Dr. Josh, things have not changed that much, unfortunately. I was a young paramedic in the uh, early 2000s, right after the 90s. Well, a hot meal would have sounded nice to me. I didn't get that. Um, the, the the pay was to pay the pay even nowadays for just regular EMTs, basic medics, could be better. Like most essential workers, they I think they deserve to be paid better. So the very first Freedom House Enterprises recruits were 25 young African-American men from the community, which included several veterans returning from Vietnam, and most of the others carried the burdens of poverty, drugs, alcohol abuse. Um, Some were illiterate, and they all began training in 1967. So in this way, the program not only provided jobs and better medical care, they did it simultaneously. And while many cities contributed to the development of emergency medical services, and you can research those on your own, Freedom House really ended up becoming the gold standard for paramedic training. So let's talk a little bit about what that looked like. And then Ward, you can chime in with how similar it was to your paramedic time. Sure. So I'm I'm really amazed by this, Josh. Everything that we had talked about so far. So when we did, you know, our review of dermatology, urology, all these kinds of things, there was some sort of predecessor, right, to teach these folks, hey, this is how to help your fellow man, fellow people, that kind of a thing. This is really from the ground up building a brand new discipline, isn't it? It is. And it's doing wow. it with people who have not only no medical training, but may, but didn't even have high school GEDs. Well, I'll, I'll, with a little bit of a twist here, which you might tell us about later, but I mean, if these guys were veterans, it's very possible that they had basic field medic training, that kind of a thing to take care of injuries and trauma. They did not, and there were only oh four. God. There were only four veterans. Well, well they had or, life life or they, they, Yeah, they had. That's true. That you know what? If you need to start a line, you find somebody. I'll say this about my EMT training. I, I did my EMT training my last year of um, my last year of undergrad at um, at, at Cal. And none of the none of the cellular biology or physics really had anything to do with day in and day out work of an EMT. But you know what really mattered? Um, a cool head, common sense, and just a can-do attitude. That would have gone farther than you know a year in cell biology. In well, being no, a medic. no. But at the same time, there has to be some expertise here in terms of well, eventually, you before know, training. I'm modern before EMT. Training. Well, oh, I see. Before training. Before, okay, before gotcha. training, well, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about yeah. the training. So over the course of a year, 32 weeks, 30 hours, these trainees received over 160 hours of preparatory training in anatomy, physiology, medical ethics, advanced resuscitation as pioneered by Dr. Safar, along with nursing care <laughs> and along with nursing care and defensive driving. So they didn't just get medical training. They got nursing training and fast and the furious training. Wow. Oh, I, I did have that. We were, um, I was trained how to drive an ambulance and it's harder than you think. Tell us about we it. A, like, well, the, the machine is big. So you ha- we had to have this course of, so the, the ambulance is wider than your normal vehicles and the, um, the mirrors kind of stick out even more. So if you're not aware of that, you can easily whack someone and, and injure someone on 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 the sidewalk. Also, um, back in the you know in the late '90s and early 2000s, we didn't have backup cameras and um, we didn't have GPS. Sure, sure. <laughs> oh, you yeah. you had to do the twist that that whole look behind you thing with your enormous yeah, you, friggin' mirrors and hope you, you didn't to, miss something in your blind spot. You had to learn how to use that mirror really, really well. And I can't tell you how many traffic cones I've ran over <laughs> in my training. <laughs> but you know what? There were traffic cones. So, you know, many traffic cones were hurt, but no in- person was injured. Okay. <laughs> so, right, taking right. People, so taking people off the streets, throwing them into an abbreviated version of the same medical training we had, plus nursing care, plus stunt driving, 
Uh, they also got six weeks of hospital-based training in the operating room and emergency department, the intensive care unit, the morgue, and the medical wards. They also attended rounds and lectures with residents, something a lot of EMS programs don't incorporate even today. Wow. So, yes, what you're, what you're refer- Dr. Josh is referring to is um, – so nowadays we have the EMTB, the basic EMTs, as well as the advanced EMTs, the paramedics. So this is more of a what's analogous to today's uh, paramedic training. Yeah, and this was just being created. So, you know, for people just taken off the street from anywhere, this would be an amazingly intense course of study. For people who are now, you know, the wrong color in a very segregated world, imagine going in, attending lectures with doctors, rounding with all these people and having everyone look at you like you're part of the help. You're sitting there trying to attend medical lectures, learning all these skills, and someone hands you a mop and tells you to clean up because they assume you're a janitor. So there was a lot of inherent bias that they had to deal with even while they were being trained. In October 1967, the very first Freedom House class began training under all these advanced issues. But when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and the riots of April 1968 broke out, the crew wasn't ready to hit the streets yet because ambulances were still being designed. Despite that, with no resources, Freedom House members still had the most emergency medical training over anyone else in the community, the police, the firemen, the city. So the city assigns them to ride with the police, two per paddy wagon, equipped by Presbyterian Hospital to provide care to people injured during these riots in 1968. Now, to give you an idea of how crazy this is, the paramedics would ride along. Now, remember, all black, right? Riding yeah. in the back of riding in the back of a police car, they had to leave lights on inside the cars and run the sirens at night, so people knew they were medics and not cops. Otherwise, they would get bricks thrown at them or shot at. Whoa! It's the '60s. I can't imagine the the adversities they had to overcome. I mean, yeah, I to, I to was, be very fair because we were you know we were tossing some things around at the beginning of the episode. I was, and there there has been change. There has been some improvement. I'm happy to say that if you had a you know ambulance full of black paramedics nowadays, you would say thank you so much for coming. Oh, we're talking about the paramet the two black people had to leave the light on in the back because otherwise if a cop car went by with two black people in the back and the lights weren't on, the cops would have been attacked for the, a lot of the same reasons that the cops are being attacked today. Uh, you know, institutionalized racism has been a problem for a long time. And oh, so you're saying that other African Americans would try to kind of free their brothers. Right, say, because you know, they thought uh, they were being arrested. They didn't realize that the two men in the back were there to provide medical assistance to whoa, anyone injured. Okay, okay, I understand. So there would be horrible misunderstandings by kind of anybody yeah. who'd walk up to this dark car. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and I'll, I'll add something to this. There's, I mean, there's, that, that's actually very smart of people to... Because representation matters, right, gentlemen? So it's it's kind of it's important to have people who um, you can relate to work in your community and work with you in in first line uh, response work. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what they managed to accomplish. So prior to this initiation of the Freedom House program, which remember launched before even they were ready because of these riots, police vehicles called for medical care would arrive in this hill district in Pittsburgh after an hour, if at all. Now, for people who've had to call 911, an hour may seem like not a long time to wait, or it may be too long. It really depends on your emergency. But Freedom Mm -hmm. House paramedics had a response time of less than 10 minutes in nearly all cases. Now, to be fair, they only covered two districts. But to have your response time drop from over an hour to 10 minutes in one of those districts, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty darn good for today's standards. And talking about your representation or at least having people that you are comfortable with in the community, during a deadly surge in heroin use, the paramedics were able to contact local drug dealers and provide information to them on identifying signs of an overdose. They also notified them they would provide medical assistance in case of emergencies, 
without any legal repercussions for those who sold or used the drugs, which means drug dealers learned to recognize when there were overdoses. They could call the paramedics on somebody's behalf, knowing that they would not be held responsible. And this overall led to a huge drop in fatal overdoses in the city. So a bit of a mixed blessing there. You don't necessarily want to encourage drug dealers, but having informed ones... (laughs) This is making the best out of a crappy situation, but again, again, things haven't changed that much. So I part of, okay. Part of my training with uh, emergency medicine was we, we, I did a month with um, the fire department and uh, and the paramedics in Brooklyn, in New York city. And that was, and that was not that long ago. That was the the, the 2000s. And even then when, uh, Brooklyn was still super segregated um, um, in some sense, even in the 2000s. There were neighborhoods of of basically all all underserved people in one area and a few miles away from, you know, super rich, super wealthy, hipster Brooklyn. And when you went into certain areas, the medics told me that they – just by their story that they were, they felt uncomfortable and they felt like sometimes if they didn't handle things with the sensitivity that were difficult, um, you, they would be attacked. That's what they told me. So, and, and I've been into calls where you could sense that the tension was definitely there, that the people in the community didn't always trust first responders. Yeah. And this is, this is the big difference, right? So when you're a paramedic, there is no good guy, bad guy. You you have to be ready to take care of anybody who's ill, sick, who needs your care at that time. Yeah, Our and blood, they're not they're not armed. <laughs> everybody's blood is the same color, barring a few interesting substances or medications. Or <laughs> <laughs> okay, very fair. All right. In 1968 alone, Freedom House responded to more than 5,800 calls in their first year, transporting over 4,600 patients, largely from within those two African-American districts of Pittsburgh, and they gained prominence for their skills and services as a result of how well-trained everyone saw they were during the riots. The very first ambulances, as we said, were two donated police wagons, but by 1973, near the end of their tenure... With some new Mm -hmm. grant funding, Freedom House was able to obtain what were apparently its signature orange and white ambulances that were outfitted with all the latest medical equipment. Um, And they continued to carry model advancements in emergency care to all these communities. As the public began hearing about this new service, they got upset and started to, you know, that they weren't getting it. And the cry, send Freedom House led to an expansion of the service into other regions of Pittsburgh where wow. you know <laughs> where paramedics often encountered a few racial tensions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I no I this is amazing to me. It's like the the rich people are actually saying, "Hey, I want that too." At this point it, that's basically what you're telling us. Oh yeah, the rich people are like how come these poor districts full of, you know, peasants are getting such amazing medical care and I'm still relying on being you know, driven to the My hospital by, yeah. by a hearse mm. or, or a chauffeur. And in fact, yeah. this led to some tensions between Freedom House and the police because there were a lot of dispatchers. When, when the Freedom House ambulance service was contracted to expand, some police felt that Freedom House had taken a job that was rightfully theirs. So dispatchers would then refuse to contact Freedom House to dispatch them to emergencies that were within their area of responsibility. So Freedom House bought a police radio and began listening in on frequencies to get news of emergencies, then sped to the site of the incident to arrive before the police. So you had you had the ambulance and the police both listening to police radios, racing. Can you imagine an ambulance chaser, an ambulance being an ambulance chaser? Um, and That's it would awesome. get so it would get so bad that occasionally the ambulance or the paramedics would show up and the police would threaten to arrest them unless they turned the response to an incident over the police ambulance staff. So they'd say, we know you guys are better at this, but you're taking our jobs. So you're either going to let us take this person and they'll probably die or we're going to arrest you for interfering with police business. Whoa. 
Yeah, as if their jobs weren't tough enough, they had to deal with that. Yeah, so. but this was this was the problem right now with kind of the, uh, the the people who are in authority, who are taking care of the city, mayors and uh, governors and this kind of a thing. They are the ones who should have been setting up uh, a separate paramedics corps so that, okay, well, these are still people who are within the bounds of first responders, but we'll start employing them specifically for medical emergencies rather than, okay, well, send the cops to do yet another thing that they don't have the qualifications to do. Yeah, well, again, inherently, their their missions are different. And again, it's not so different from today. Um, law enforcement will bring in people who they will ask doctors to medically clear. I don't know if you guys ever had that experience. And the, the priorities are both important, but the priorities are very different from arresting someone, enforcing the law, and enforcing, um, and maybe potentially taking someone to jail versus, hey, that person needs medical attention. Right. I mean, you never knew as one of these 25 initial recruits, you never knew when you showed up in an emergency how it was going to go, whether you would be fighting with the cops to be able to provide care, whether they would bring you out to an area that you weren't normally assigned to go because your care was superior, or whether they would make you stand off to the side, or if even the person would allow you to treat them because you know you were a different color than them. Um, so there was a lot of ground being broken all over the place. And sure. this this kind of came to a peak in 1974. Uh, Dr. Safar began taking a little bit of a step back and assigned a young critical care resident, Nancy Caroline, MD, as the new medical director of the Freedom House Ambulance Service. And she even got a Department of Transportation grant and developed the very first paramedic textbook, which, while not only being an amazing textbook, has one of my favorite names, Nancy mm. Caroline's Emergency Care in the Streets. <laughs> that would sell as one of those, like in the 1980s, when we were growing up, one of those direct for home video instructional type of thing like the the same thing that you'd get to order for like 9.99 plus shipping and handling no cod's accepted oh there's an eighth edition you can still get that you uh, <laughs> oh nice well, i don't know on, online it became wow. one of the most widely used and popular paramedic textbooks for years but every time i hear it i think emergency like gunshot in the sheets emergency care in the streets and <laughs> I, I would uh, not date that, date that person. No, thank you. No, that's no, what, that's I don't think left. I would either. That's why I've left. <laughs> so the the and she went on to do a lot. Of, she, in fact, her work with Freedom House and developing this paramedic textbook was so extensive. And she would go on ride-alongs with the paramedics, um, both to serve as their you know token white person, so they could deal with the cops, and also because she was still training them even on the job. You know, they, she'd be like, all right, intubate, do this. And she would tell them, you know, teach them right there on site and take naps in the ambulance cots in between runs. Can and I just say it, that intubating in the field is one of the toughest things you can ever do? <laughs> props I, to I them. imagine. Pro props to the, the EMS workers. Good God. Even CPR. Can you, CPR in the street, it, it really is different from CPR in a hospital setting. It, it, it's so much tougher. Yeah, I really do forget every time, and, and it's especially so for pediatrics, right? Because whenever things are smaller, yes, the airway's smaller, but it's so easy to compress a teeny tiny chest. So, but I, I can imagine all of the kind of, to be fair, like kind of luxury that we experience when there's always a firm surface, there's always help that you can call out to in the hospital versus that when you're on the street, you're it. And whatever surface that person's on, that's the surface. Whatever lighting you have, that's the lighting you have. Yeah. You can't, you luck, can't pull over and over intubating after 5 p.m. <laughs> that makes it sound like vampires. You don't intubate after 5 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> That and garlic, I don't, I don't do it. Thank you very much. 
<laughs> and then there was the daywalker. <laughs> listen, listen. I've been part of emergency care in the streets. You don't want to intubate after 5 p.m. Uh, <laughs> so Nancy Caroline's textbook and work with Freedom House were so impressive that it set not just a national standard, but an international standard because Nancy Caroline was recruited on the basis of her work with them to head up the creation or became the medical director for Israel's emergency medical and paramedic services uh, later on in life. And again, something else you can look up for kicks and giggles. Everyone involved with this was just amazing. So Pittsburgh's Freedom House Ambulance Project ran from 1967 to 1975, and the things that they taught them to do, the high-level medical training, the kitted out ambulances that had uh, you know, an actual bed. They had headroom so you could stand and perform compressions. They had oxygen tanks, EKG monitors. Um, all the stuff that you kind of see today dates back to the 60s. In fact, by 1974, only a year before they closed, the U.S. government recognized Pittsburgh for having the best city emergency service program in the nation. Damn. And then they were then disbanded in 1975 when the city took over the program. What the fuck? No. Because a, the previous mayor, so the mayor, we had, well, let's go back to our mayor who died. He died. He died. His successor, uh, Mayor Barr, certainly didn't want to have a similar thing happen to him. So he allowed himself to be convinced to increase funding for Freedom House and develop some of these grants and was responsible for, you know, helping to expand and create this program. But his successor, a garbage human called Pete Flaherty, whose actions impeded operations for Freedom House because he really didn't want black people doing things that, you know, white people could be doing. And he didn't like that they were getting recognition for it. So he couldn't be outright racist, even for the 60s. Instead, okay. he began Instead, he began trying to find creative ways to limit the authority and ability of Freedom House to perform their services. So one example, he prohibited the use of sirens downtown because of alleged noise complaints. So the ambulances couldn't run with sirens, which made it harder for them to get around traffic and make it to medical calls on time. When wealthier communities protested that poor neighborhoods were receiving better medical care, he did not expand their jurisdiction so they could go out to these wealthier communities and even froze their funding and seized its assets to be used for the city's new all-white emergency medical services agency. Under Flaherty in 1975, the entire EMS system was redesigned. New tests were written that didn't encompass what Freedom House medics were taught. And remember, we talked about how extensive their education was. Right. For, yeah. for people who had started out, you know, some of them illiterate, you know, they were passing tests that, I'll be honest, I don't know that I could have passed when I first got into med school. Yeah, yeah and, these were brilliant people. They were highly, highly intelligent. You know what? Even if they weren't, it just showed to it just goes to show how good this education training program was. You could take somebody from any walk of life and turn them into an immensely qualified paramedic. So I'm not going to write this off as oh they were specially gifted diamonds in the rough. They were sure. plain ordinary average run of the mill people who were turned into these amazing machines of paramedic medicine. And then this uh, garbage human came in and came up with new tests that didn't encompass what they were taught. So some of them failed, failed or quit because the city brought in new doctors who changed the protocols. All of those who had criminal records were fired because they were ex-convicts. And the arbitrary punishments and poor excuses for the city's neglect were generally perceived as lame attempts to hide blatant institutional racism. Good thing that's all been fixed. (laughs) Sounds like that was... (laughs) Another 2020. <laughs> that was 2020 back then. So no, at the, th- oh, at the end of the, all of the remaining, so of the 25 original Freedom House recruits, only five continued working under these new 
guidelines or could still stay working for emergency medicine or paramedics under these new guidelines. None of them were ever offered any promotions. And a few, I think only one or two, were left around to, well, we'll get to that in a moment, but only one or two really stayed in it for any length of time after. So from 25 people taken off the streets, given amazing training, improvement in their communities, and the creation of a paramedic service so good, it led to a national standard. And all of this just disappeared into the ether or would have stayed lost for years because I certainly never learned about Freedom House. And I'm going to guess neither of you two did either. Mm -mm. No. And I do emergency medicine. Well, I, I think with any with any historical story, when um, many of them had unfortunate and sad endings, but this one did stand out as a. These were people who broke the mold, pushed boundaries, and brought emergency medicine EMS um, to a new plane to a new level. Right. So yeah, and you should be happy fact- about that. Well, the only reason any of this information survives is that there is a documentary, which you can watch, called Freedom House Doc. It's available on YouTube in its entirety, and it it does interviews with some of these people who trained, you know, the ones still alive, and they talk about how crazy it was to design all this. So, And Freedom House has now been brought back with a new grant to increase diversity and try and resume some of that progressive driving force behind medicine that they once served. So they have returned to Pittsburgh under a new grant to honor the original legacy, and hopefully they can get a little bit more recognition moving forward. But I certainly wanted to talk a little bit about that because I had no clue that the paramedic specialty started in Pittsburgh or any of it, that it was certainly that it was run uh, by the African American community because they were sick and tired of not getting good care just because of their skin color. Let's move on a little bit from Freedom House, but I highly encourage everyone go listen to that documentary. And this has also come up on a recent episode of 99% Invisible, and you should check that one out too. But it really got me looking into some of these initial things. So Ward, before we move on to the next part of our story, do you have any other stories you'd like to share from your EMT training? Or was it, you know, how does it compare to what we described? What is it like today? You already described EMT advanced and EMT basic. There's two different branches. Yeah. Well, basically one, you know, the the more advanced EMT is basically a paramedic. Here in California, you can... uh, there are two categories and the basic EMTs are, they do, you know, CPR, they do transport, they do um, non-critical care stuff. So they can't intubate, they can't uh, put in lines, they can't run medications other than oxygen and maybe an EpiPen. Um, at least that was when I trained and the more advanced medics can, um, can, can give IV lines, they can give certain cardiac medications and they can do more advanced stuff, including intubating and controlling the airway. But I, I do want to give a plug to our EMS system um, because sometimes, you know, you know, you keep seeing these videos, hey, if you have stroke-like symptoms, call 911, or if you have severe bleeding, call 911. There's a reason for that. Um, it's because they are trained to take care of you, and they are trained to take you to the right place with the right resources. So, you know, if you are for example, if you have a birth emergency, you don't want to go to a hospital without labor and delivery and C-section capabilities. If you are have a penetrating trauma or got shot or fell off your roof, you want to go to a trauma center because if you miss that golden hour of trauma, well, there's a chance you might have you know a bad outcome. Uh, similarly, for a lot of other conditions like strokes, we have stroke centers. We have if you're um, um, if you have a heart attack, there are centers that can open up your, you know, cardiac vessels and not every hospital can do that. So um, if you do have a true life-threatening emergency, call 911 and get the EMS system involved. And we are trained to take you to the right places. So who staffs an ambulance? How many people run an ambulance now? If if you call and it shows up, is there a, a paramedic, a basic EMT? Who Who's the crew? Oh, great question. It depends on what kind of ambulance and what kind of need you have. So if you sprained your ankle, um, they will run through, you know, the the 
medical command and they'll send out the re- right resources. Usually, if you just sprain an ankle, you need transport. That's a EMTB. That's a, a you know basic EMT who can put you in a splint and transfer you to the closest hospital. Most of them can take care of you. Um, that's usually a crew of two. So you need one driver up front and one person in the back taking care of the patient. If you get if you get a more you know the paramedic level of care, then it's usually also two, one in the back, one in the front, um, and then sometimes once in a while they'll need a critical care nurse to go with the driver as well. So they, you might have more than just two because sometimes they have to adjust medications, they have to adjust ventilators, they have to adjust more advanced uh, equipment. So so you you you'll need a crew of two or three. And the physicians, if a doctor comes along, that's usually like a ride along, right? They're actually there to train and get some experience from the people who know what they're doing. Uh, A doctor almost never rides along, with the exception of if I were to transfer someone out of my emergency department and that person is so critically ill that the the medic riding along just cannot safely take that person over once in a while one of us will jump in the rig with the medic and by necessity take that person because you know we we are supposed to transfer someone in a stable condition so they have the best chance of making it so in other words if someone who were shot and showed up into a little community place with no trauma surgeons uh, and i need to keep them alive I might have to jump in there. That's a really, really rare condition. I mean, that's a really, really rare situation. And knock on wood, I've never had to do that. So let's talk a little bit about 911. Now, I'll give you guys the history of 911. But before I do, let's just connect the dots between this and Freedom House. Remember, I told you the calls used to be over an hour and Freedom House got it down to 10 minutes. Well, what's the response time now? According to a study published in 2017 in JAMA Surgery, Across the U.S., the average interval between a 911 call and an ambulance arriving on scene is seven minutes in urban centers, 13 minutes in rural areas, but in some isolated places, it can still be up to 30 minutes before help arrives. A typical vehicle for ambulance cost, uh, an ambulance cost ride, averages around $125,000 to $150,000, and some models can be even pricier because you're paying not only for the ambulance and the EMTs on it, but the cardiac monitor that keeps heart patients safe. That runs like $40,000. There's a Lucas compression machine. That's about $15,000. Even a stretcher can cost $20,000. So the fact that a lot of cities just contract out EMS services to for-profit companies make even short ambulance rides expensive. And a lot of health insurance companies won't always cover the cost of that ambulance ride. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of hands, and a lot of a lot of equipment is involved with one, just a single ambulance ride. Because you have to call dispatch. You have usually these med- um, ambulance companies have a medical director. And then there's the whole EMS system, the county EMS system involved to, to safely guide you where you're supposed to go. So, Oh, also, also, if you're a medic and you show up to a hospital with your patient, you might be stuck there for a while if that's a busy emergency department or a busy hospital. You're, you can't abandon your patient, right? So you're going to wait there until they can safely bed the patient, and that might be a couple hours or three hours. So I'm going to ask you guys two questions that are going to seem a little bit odd, and then we'll get into a very brief history of 911. The first question is, when was the very first 911 call made? What year? Ooh, prices right um, Well, <laughs> I mean, you told us that there were police around before the 1960s. So... They had to string up telephone lines, probably on the East Coast, post-war, I'm almost certain, 1951. Ward? I'm going to say 1952. In 1957, the International Fire Chiefs Association suggested a single national emergency number, and then they were promptly ignored until 
1967 when Lyndon Johnson got the ball rolling and the oh, very first <laughs> and, so and the very first 911 call was made on February 16th 1968 by what? by <laughs> Alabama Senator Rankin Fight to a Tennessee senator whose name I forget um now that was <laughs> the first part now before we fill okay. in some of the stuff in the middle when did Congress designate nine one one the official emergency number? Well, uh, hold on, hold on. I, I got to backtrack just a little bit here. So th- there was a, a big step that's kind of missing here in my mind. So there was no nine one one when Freedom House was kind of starting up and going around. Is what uh, you're saying? The, it had just been initiated because um, remember, okay. Freedom House rolled out in the nineteen sixty eight riots. And sure. those were in October, and the very first nine one one system call. Uh, sure. Not that before that, you would just call the operator, and the operator would connect you to, to the local hospital. We'll we'll get into that in a moment. Oh, oh, so you just you know, in the midst of like bleeding out, you'd have to be able to clearly say, you know, I need emergency help to an operator on probably a very fuzzy phone line. And the operator would have to decide, did she want to contact the hospital, the police department, the fire station, who was closest? Or Freedom House. Well, Freedom House there, but this was across the whole nation. You know, you you got a human operator who just had to kind of figure out, uh, where are you calling from? Here's what's closest, and they would direct your call. But there was no national system in place. But we'll Whoa. get to that. <laughs> okay. So like I said... Prior to 1960, for any emergency, you just called your local hospital, fire, police department, or the operator. In 1957, the inter- the International Fire Chiefs Association said, hey, maybe you guys might like a single national emergency number. And everyone <laughs> said, nah, we're good. And then Lyndon, jo- <laughs> Lyndon Johnson, of all people, was like, no, we should probably do this. So to make this universal emergency number a reality, the Federal Communications Commission partnered with the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, who you may know as AT&T, in, right. <laughs> late, in late 1967 to figure out what that number should be. And after mulling it over, AT&T proposed in 1968 that the numbers 911 should make up the new universal emergency phone number. I bet you didn't know 911 is because AT&T said it should be. <laughs> So the phone company basically said, this is a number we've got, take it or leave it kind of thing. They said, look, we've already got our system set up to do 311, 411, and 211 calls. 911 is not being used as any area code, zip, or postal code. It has no other associations, and our system can already handle it. Make it 911. And the FCC said, yeah, all right, that's fine, whatever. It's not like we really care. (laughs) okay so we could have ended up with some weird ass like 472 or 651 or some insanely difficult to remember give at&t some credit 911 is catchy no it is now (laughs) in the u in the uk it's 999 okay Uh all right that's catchier i like that better or 111 also right there's they have a um Oh, I guess that's non-emergency, but that's still for health. So a little more than a month after AT&T officially designated the efficient on rotary phones number, because remember, there used to be phones where you had to stick your finger in a hole and crank it all the way around and then let it dial back. Kids, go look that up. We're all old (laughs) enough to remember that. Don't remind us. Rotary. (laughs) Well, I'm assuming that some of our listeners may have been born after the era of rotary phones. (laughs) That's that's fair. Okay. (laughs) So a month after AT&T officially designated the efficient on rotary phones 911, which were not being used in any telephone exchange or postal code, this phone call was made. On February 16th, 1968. So great, we now had a national number. But disagreements arose around the country over whether the call should go to the hospital, the police station, or the fire station. Also, right. there, there was a bit of a problematic rollout as a lot of rural areas often weren't served by AT&T. 
So their local companies weren't in a position to switch over to 911 as it was not legally mandated by any single national law. So, you know, you've got got AT&T. So you have AT&T who's like, yeah, our service can handle this. And Congress and the FCC is like, great, you can do it. And then there's a bunch of uh, little phone companies who are like, "Um, we're not AT&T and we can't handle that and AT&T's like too bad suckers let's talk about how this got fixed kind of the national 911 distribution service is still subject to a lot of problems which we'll talk about in a little bit but Robert Wood Johnson whose father had started Johnson and Johnson had recently died around the same time the modern emergency apparatus was coming to life So when the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation started in 1972, the medical world suddenly had a billion-dollar foundation ready to help as the younger Johnson had turned the company into a corporate force thanks in no small part to Band-Aids. Because I am stuck on Band-Aid Branson's Band-Aid's stuck on me. (laughs) Are we announcing a new sponsor? What's going on? (laughs) I'm a child of commercials. What can I tell you? So... (laughs) In nine, so nineteen seventy-five. I'm so sorry. I was just thinking about if, like, the Oscar Mayer Foundation had decided to fund this. <laughs> like this revisionist history. <laughs> It'd be like Oscar Mayer just steps up and be like, "We'll take care of the national emergency system." <laughs> Let's be honest. I think we'd all appreciate riding to the hospital in a Wienermobile ambulance. Oh, just the, the visual alone is just fantastic. So you've got a new 911 system proposed by AT&T that you need a national rollout for. In 1973, only 11% of the people in areas supported by the Johnson Foundation program had access to 911 or some equivalent emergency phone number. A mere four years later, at the end of this program in 1977, 95% of people had access to 911. And these outcomes were not necessarily mirrored in the nation as a whole in 1979 only 25% of the US population was covered by 911 and even today the 911 system is available to only about 85% of the US really But progress was made in the 44 grant areas and did serve as a model of the emergency phone number's effectiveness. And keep in mind, when you're calling 911, in 1973, only 12 paramedic crews existed in the entire country, and one of them was Freedom House. (laughs) Which was, I mean, functioning really well, and then... Which was the the national model... One of 12 paramedic crews in the entire country around the time we got 911 up and running. And a year later, they were shut down and they were the best of the bunch. Now, wow. for, a fun, for a fun little bit. Now, the, today's 911 system does still need to be updated because of smartphones and GPS systems. It used to be, you know, directions could be as simple as, I'm down by the local general store on the corner. Now... They can pinpoint you to within your, you know, they have to figure out where you are based on your Instagram or your text or whatever. So the 911 system still needs an overhaul. And part of that modern technology is why it still only covers about 85% of the population. Um, Wow. So as in, if you have a family or something that doesn't have a landline, for instance, and they have to rely on a mobile service because they don't have a ground line of any type that they subscribe to, then they have trouble getting 911 to kind of locate where they are. Although, I mean, I thought the FCC said that even if you just pick up a dead phone without a SIM card in it, you should be able to call 911 in the Being nation, able to right? Call- being able to call them is one thing, but the ambulance has to get to you, Santosh. And if all they have access to your location is to use Apple Maps. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. It relies, on GPS. Just... <laughs> it, relies on, it relies on GPS tracking data, which isn't always the most reliable. So the 911 system has had a lot of problems trying to localize 
with people calling from smartphones or texting. And nowadays, more people have smart devices than have landlines. Right, right. So, so we need a new overhaul, basically. In a last bit of jaw-dropping gobstoppery, I want you guys to give me your best guess as to when Congress finally got around to designating 911 the official emergency number. Price you know, is Josh, right, rules. <laughs> you would actually, that, this would be a good game for um, uh, that timeline game we played. Oh, this would be well, great. The, <laughs> although it's making me horribly depressed. Okay, you said in the 1970s the program was initiated. And okay. we started. 1968 yeah. was the very first 911 first, call. Right, By 1977, right. uh-huh. the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation had supported 44 grant areas to expand out the 911 access. But when did Congress designate 911 the official emergency number of the United States? Okay. All right. So I couldn't have been too much longer because now there's momentum, right? It's it's gaining speed. AT&T is almost a nationwide carrier because they're starting to spread out. I don't want I, your I, rationale. I just want your guess. Well, I mean, I was out in Iowa. I was in a city in Waterloo and we had 911. If you went out to the country, I think you still had 911. I was, I was eight years old. This is not <laughs> Slumdog Millionaire. <laughs> Okay, 1985. 19, 1985 is the has got to be the max because I I had good hey, coverage. Ward, what's your guess? <laughs> I I would have thought it was the eighties too, eighty nine. I, I saw the answer, but I I might would have guessed nineteen eighty nine. Congress designate formally designated nine one one the official emergency number in nineteen ninety nine when I graduated high school. <laughs> Come on. Three, Three years after the end of the television show Rescue 911. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I guess this is just like a formal stamp, right? This is just an edict saying, like, this is the formal thing. So I, I guess it's okay if it's a little late. I don't know. I don't think too many people even had landlines um, not far after 1999. Yeah, so Congress is like, oh, we should probably formally make this the national. So from 1957, when the international fire chief said there should be a single national emergency number, 1999, we finally declared it the official emergency number. Yay. Wow. <laughs> so, okay, well, better late than never. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> did, I, did I keep my season finale promise? Did I teach you something? Did I amaze, astound, and razzle you? I'm so happy that I know about this. Ward, uh, I'm so glad to hear about the stuff that you taught us also about being a paramedic on the ground. This is so cool. Yeah, I definitely learned something new. That was that was, uh, that was was definitely not taught in my paramedic course. I will say, <laughs> I will say that. So uh, hopefully we've given you guys a whole other season of new things. I know... Halfway through our season, you know, the world got dropped into a flaming pile of pandemic, and we'll see how things continue to develop. But we're going to take a short break. We will be back in October. And even though the holidays will likely be canceled, there will still be a Halloween episode. Don't say that. Uh, I think we should all just prepare for it at this time. There's there's going to be a winter wave. And I know Game of Thrones memes are played out, but winter is coming, folks. <laughs> so we'll be back in October with a brand new lucky season number seven. I can't believe we've been going this long. And thank you so much to everyone listening at home for your comments, your questions, your feedback. We love to hear from you. Don't stop believing. Don't stop contacting us. And uh, we've got a great season in development for next time around. In the meantime, the show is produced by me with a lot of help from Drs. Ward, Santosh, and all the travel medicine friends. 
Our theme music is produced by Rachel Ledger. If you would like to learn more about Freedom House, or if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. And until October, when we return, wear a mask, stay safe, and even though none of us are likely to go anywhere, I'm still going to go ahead and wish you, until next time, happy travels. Bye, guys. Happy travels. I'm a Toys R Us kid. I want to get sponsored by <laughs> Toys R Us. <laughs> uh, you're, you're asking for a dead company to sponsor us? Lord. At this time. Hey, it's 2020. It's maybe 2020. They'll, maybe they'll resurrect in time for our Halloween episode. We'll see you. We'll see you all in October. In the meantime, we've got six seasons of backlogs for you to listen to. That ought to be enough to keep you busy till then. Have a wonderful time, and happy travels, gang. Bye, everybody. Woohoo. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details